solar power in Shungnak, geothermal in Unalaska, hydro in Kodiak. What else is on the horizon for Alaska's clean energy future? Alaskans have long dealt with the conundrum of being an energy-producing state, while at the same time paying some of the highest rates for electricity and heating fuel in the nation. As solar, wind, hydro, and geothermal systems become more efficient and effective, what are the economic prospects for aiding citizens and businesses with clean, lower-cost power? We'll discuss current projects and future plans for renewable energy today on Talk of Alaska. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by Alaska Air Cargo, providing Gold Streak Express shipping for urgent deliveries throughout Alaska with connections to more than 100 destinations in the lower 48 and Hawaii. More at alaskacargo.com. On June 11th, Alaska will have the first round of a special election to fill the open seat in Congress. Every Alaskan voter will receive a ballot in the mail. In the June 11th primary, you can only vote for one person. The ranking happens later. Pick your favorite candidate, sign, and get a friend to sign as well. Then mail it back. And remember that June 11th is the Pick One primary. This message sponsored by Alaskans for Better Elections. The views expressed on this program are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Hello, it's Talk of Alaska. I'm Lori Townsend. Some forms of renewable energy have a fairly long history in Alaska. Wind turbines were tried on the northwest coast many decades ago. But the technology wasn't up to the rigors of Arctic winters, and the hoped-for benefits of free energy from wind fell by the wayside. But much has changed since those early efforts, and new technology is making renewable systems more viable for even the most remote communities in the Arctic. As climate change advances, there is a growing sense of urgency among clean energy advocates to make a transition from fossil fuel as fast as possible. That's still a long way off, but progress is happening, and here to describe where advancements are being made in Alaska is Gibby Kohanoski. Is that close? Yeah, that is. Kohanoski. Sorry about that. The senior advisor for the U.S. Department of Energy uh, in the Arctic Energy Office in Anchorage. Hi, Gibby. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. It's really great to have people in the studio again. I can't get over how nice it is to have people in person. Garrett Boyle is also in the studio with us. Garrett is the federal co-chair of the Denali Commission. Hi, Garrett. Good morning. And Bill Stamm is president and CEO of the Alaska Village Electric Cooperative, or AVAC. Hi, Bill. Bill's on the phone. Hello. Good morning. Thanks so much for being on the line with us, Bill. Later in the program, we'll be joined by Edwin Byfelt, the founder and CEO of Alaska Native Renewables Ener Industries. That organization got started in Huslia. And you can join our conversation if you'd like. Does your community have renewable energy systems or planning for some? Do you have solar or wind generation at your home? What do you think is possible for weaning Alaska off of expensive diesel for rural power? You can call us statewide at 1-800-478-8255. That's 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422, 550-8422. You can also email us questions and comments to talk at alaskapublic.org. So let's start by getting a better understanding of the relationship between these organizations. Garrett, describe the work of the Denali Commission, um, what it does as it relates to renewables and energy efficiency. 
Yeah, so we have been involved, I want to say since at least 2007 in various renewable energy projects. We've helped out Pelican with their hydro and a, a lot of stuff over the years. Currently what we're doing is working in partnership with Gibby's office as well as the Department of Energy's Indian Energy Office, which Gibby was formerly a part of, and AVEC and AEA in doing exactly what we're talking about here today, trying to help villages transition off of diesel. And a lot of that comes through funding partnerships with our various organizations and others, trying to capital stack, if you will, to figure out how we can put a wind turbine, for example, in Stebbins or solar and wherever, um, helping out with small hydro projects and uh, repairing a small hydro down in Uzinki right now. So just kind of doing whatever we can to get villages off of diesel. Fantastic. Um, and certainly we'll talk more about that as we go on. But Gibby, the DOE Arctic Energy Office, um, you, <clears throat> as Garrett noted, you transitioned there from the Indian office within DOE. Describe what your work is there in the Arctic Energy Office and how long has it been in service to Alaska? Okay. So the uh, Arctic Energy Office has its roots back in the Ted Stevens years. And in the original formation, it was a fossil energy centric office looking at uh, how the Department of Energy could advance the energy development in Alaska. And then uh, it somewhat sunsetted for a while, and the tribal office, the Indian Energy Office, uh, came in person to Alaska back in 2013. And then about two years ago, the Arctic Energy Office was reconstituted with a much broader mission, and it focuses on three main areas of science, security, and energy. And there's a senior advisor counterpart of mine in each of those areas. And then we have a communications director and our director, George Rowe, who's down in Seattle. And uh, our main focus is to bring the needs of Alaska and the Pan-Arctic to the department and then bring the capabilities of the department and the national labs to Alaska and the Arctic. All right. Thanks for that. And Bill, let's turn to you now. Um, talk about how Alaska Village Electric Cooperative, AVEC, has expanded into renewables. Uh, AVEC's been around for a long time. You serve 56 villages, I think, something around there. How, how have you started that transition into renewable energy? Um, I, I think maybe uh, in your lead-in introduction, you had talked about trying uh, renewables early on. Right. Are you, are you still there? Sorry, my computer fell asleep here, there on you. I'll, I'll continue. Um, so Alaska Village Electric has been around since 1968, and we serve 58 communities around rural Alaska. Um, they are all independent, small microgrids. Only one of those communities is accessible by road. So we primarily rely on diesel generation to provide electricity in these communities. Uh, as early as 1999, we worked with Kotzbue Electric to install wind turbines in Wales, Alaska. Um, that was a project that operated for four or five years, uh, was cutting edge, and, and really was, uh, we learned a lot of lessons, uh, but that system, I think you alluded to in your introduction, was one that didn't last very long. Um, since 2005, we've been installing wind turbines in different uh, communities. We now have 14 sites with 32 wind turbines. Uh, providing renewable energy to 20 different communities out of those 58. Some of the communities are tied together with uh, electrical tie lines. Um, we've been partnering most recently with the Northwest Arctic Borough for solar and energy storage up in the uh, Nana region. 
Uh, we just installed, or they just installed in October, a solar battery system there. And I think you'll probably talk a little bit more about when Edwin comes on later in the program. But uh, overall, primarily diesel generation with all of our wind turbines uh, and the solar that we have now, it displaces only about 5% of our total generation. So we've got a long way to go, but there are tremendous resources out there for wind and solar uh, throughout Alaska and hydro. Well, and as you noted, uh, it takes time. Uh, 5% of your energy is coming from renewables currently. Energy transition won't happen quickly or as quickly as some folks would like. But certainly there's a lot of ways to uh, improve efficiencies and use less fuel, cause less pollution. Uh, for all of you, that's a, a question. Givy, do you want to start us off there in, in some of what um, you're involved in? And then we can hear from Garrett and Bill, too, about those efficiencies and uh, modernizing systems so that, you know, they can be, even the diesel systems can be more efficient. I think it's important to look at the full life cycle of energy systems. And one thing that's really exciting that's happening with the Department of Energy in Alaska right now is an initiative called CORE-CM, which stands for Carbon Ore Rare Earth Critical Minerals. And there's a green supply chain between behind all of renewable energy that we need minerals and we need resources, ideally domestically sourced, to be able to provide the parts and components for electric vehicles, for renewable systems and such. And through this project, uh, the Office of Fossil Energy and Carbon Management has awarded a grant to UAF in the state of Alaska to jumpstart the rare earth economy in Alaska. So I think on one bookend you have that, and then you have the discussion points we're talking about today where there's actually applied science and research going into better systems around the state. Bill and I just had the privilege of traveling together with our undersecretary last week, and we went to Shungnak and Noatak, and we saw the full operational capabilities of a system that AVEC worked with the department on and the Northwest Arctic Borough and NANA and many other partners to make it possible, but to see a, a community running during high sunlight entirely on solar power with battery backup. And I think that's that's been a while in the making, but it, I think, shows that this technology is available to Alaskans. It does work up here. It works really well. And it's a way that it's not going to solve all the diesel challenges, but it'll certainly put a dent in the diesel cost for those communities, which is a benefit to not only that community, but all the others around it that can replicate this. And we'll learn more about that when Edwin joins us after 1030. Uh, and if you're just joining us, this is Talk of Alaska. We're talking about renewable energy projects for this summer and, and looking toward the future as um, Alaskan communities look to stabilize their energy production and lower costs and also turn to something more, uh, less polluting than diesel is. Garrett, when you look at the projects um, that the Denali Commission is involved in, how, how are you thinking about those improvements as far as increasing efficiencies and using modern technology that can help um, lower costs for communities? Well, I'd start, I think, by building a little bit off what Gibby said. Uh, the, the critical mineral supply chain is so important. You know, there's a lot of copper that needs to go into wind turbines. If we're talking about energy storage, you need lithium, you need cobalt, you need nickel. And ideally, again, as Gibby said, you source those domestically. But in rural Alaska, I think we start by looking at housing a lot of the times. I mean, in villages, you have these very old houses that probably weren't built well to begin with. <clears throat> so if we can upgrade that stock, that will go a long way without doing anything to the grid. 
if you can improve the transmission lines in these small villages so there's less energy loss over the lines, that's great. If you can change out a powerhouse that's 25 years old to a newer upgraded powerhouse that you know is more efficient and with less emissions, that's great. If you can get wind turbines and solar out there to both lower the emissions, displace diesel, and lower the cost of energy, that's ideal. You do all of that, and I think that would have a tremendous impact across the state. And are those um, projects that you're looking at for this summer? Yes. Um, we just closed our notice of funding opportunity for the year on uh, May 13. So we're kind of in the process of scoring and seeing what kind of projects we're actually going to be doing or awarding. Um, so ideally, yeah, we'll, we'll be handing out some money for energy improvements. And Bill, talk about how AVEC has, uh, you know, you talked a little about this earlier, about lessons learned and, and um, getting into the renewables field. But along those lines, how are you also working to improve efficiencies in the diesel systems that AVEC uses? Yeah, um, you know, fuel has always been king on our mind. Um, the rates that AVEC charges for electricity um, over the years, if you sum it all up, there's uh, about 50% of the rate comes from the cost of fuel in any community. Some communities that's higher, some communities that's lower. But as a general basis, um, our cost can be close to 50 cents kilowatt hour, which is more than twice what it would be in Anchorage. Um, and half of that cost is just the diesel fuel that costs to burn uh, in order to make electricity out there. Um, we have always had an eye on what we can do to make our diesel plants more efficient. So over the years, we have done things like take the uh, cooling fans off of the engines to reduce that parasitic load, making uh, remote cooling systems so we're circulating hot water between engines and keeping the whole plant warm, adding heat recovery to that so that that heat can also be used throughout the community in water and sewer systems, putting in variable speed drives so we're not running fans at full speed all the time. So reducing our own electrical loads within the power plants, uh, putting in more and more efficient diesel engines. We've kind of standardized on a, on a handful of engines that supply the power and the power range that we need that are the most efficient available uh, on the market. And um, continuing to look at any way we can make our diesels as efficient as possible. Um, we've gotten to a point where we're kind of at the top of the curve for diesel efficiency. And I think uh, renewables is really the next step in being able to make a, a significant dent in diesel reduction. 1-800-478-8255 is the number statewide if you'd like to join our conversation on the future of renewable energy projects and uh, the way forward in Alaska. 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422, 550-8422. And you can email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. Bill, you um, had mentioned in an earlier interview that that as much as sixty percent, there's going to be as much as a sixty percent increase in diesel fuel costs this year. Sixty percent. What will this mean for AVEC, and and how much may you have to adjust the expense for power users? So um, I mentioned earlier that a significant portion of our 
cost for electricity comes from the fuel cost. And uh, AVEC is a not-for-profit electric utility. We're owned by the members we serve. Really, our, our goal is to provide safe, affordable electricity for our membership. Um, whatever it costs us for fuel, we pass on that cost in our rates to our consumers with no markup. So if we see a 60% increase in fuel costs, which is due to world economics at this point, um, our consumers are probably going to see a, a 30 to 40% increase in their electrical rates. Um, that can be pretty shocking to folks. And AVEC is in a, a good position as far as having uh, the ability Apologize. The ability to uh, purchase fuel in advance and cover the cost of additional expenses, um, and then take time to even out those costs for our consumers over time. There's a lot of smaller utilities or individual communities, um, not necessarily utilities, but the communities themselves that have to buy fuel, and they're looking at steep increases in, in operating costs this year. So it, it's going to be tough. And ha have you heard from some communities about how they're grappling with this or what they plan to do? Um, the discussion at this point is, you know, looking forward, what are the estimates? You know, as you pose the question as well, what, what do you expect to see in fuel prices? And um, that is looking like, you know, 50 to 60 percent increase uh, over last year. And uh, I guess it really comes to a head in the fall when uh, the barges stop running and whether or not people had had the ability to fill up their tanks for the winter. Um, there have been periodic times uh, over the years where we get a call midwinter or early spring from a community that is about running out of fuel and they're wondering how much fuel we have in our tanks and how much fuel is in the school tanks to figure out um, how we can keep heat and lights in the community until the barges show up again the following year. So I guess it remains to be seen um, how well everybody did this year in getting their tanks filled. All right. Thank you. We'll keep an eye on that and probably check in again toward fall and see how communities are doing. Givy, uh, you and Garrett both mentioned this core CM rare earths project. How Talk about that in relation to most people associate any kind of mining with not clean um, processes. How is, is this different? And if so, how is it going? To, you mentioned a green supply chain. Right. Uh, if you look at our global supply chain for minerals, there's very little domestic supply right now, which puts us in a national security lurch. And also for the technologies we're discussing today, you definitely need the minerals that Garrett was talking about. What's so interesting about this initiative between the Department of Energy and the university and the state is that it's trying to jumpstart our economy in this field. We've got some great prospects up here in Bacan Mountain in Southeast, which UCOR is trying to develop, uh, Stan Fu and Graphite One out by Nome. There's also refiners like CVMR that has new uh, vaporless uh, vapor mineralization technology that's part of this initiative. So it really is looking at the challenges through a new lens and trying to come to a place like Alaska, which has a really strong history of re uh, responsible resource development. 
and I think that there will be great prospects coming out of this initiative. I think that we're going to see this grow and uh, help make uh, – an American supply chain. For example, on the graphite front, we have not had an active graphite mine in this country since 1990. And having a domestic supply for that, which Graphite One could be part of, and they're in the pre-feasibility stage right now of their uh, analysis of their site, could be another uh, win for our country and another win for renewable power because batteries do need a lot of graphite. And and talk about the green route of these uh, of these de- developing these minerals that are needed from our cell phones to electric vehicles to electric aviation you're going to need batteries and the batteries require these minerals and you know the choice right now is to cho- you know go to Africa or China or places that don't have environmental controls that have poor labor practices that you know are certainly not the values that we hold in this country and I think the more we can uh, responsibly develop in our nation and with our allies the better off we'll be Garrett, is this something that uh, Denali Commission will be involved in somehow? I think we're trying to figure out how we can be. Um, our, our focus is, broadly speaking, you know, rural Alaska, and we just we don't have the funding to you know partner with UAF to the tune of millions of dollars to develop these kind of things. But if we can figure out a way to do it, I, yes, I think it would be important for us. Um, just building for a second off what Givy said, you know, we're in this odd conundrum where. So many people are trying to buy green vehicles, but the lithium and the cobalt are mined in Congo and China. And that's done, as Gibby said again, very low human rights standards, labor standards, low environmental standards. So producing them here with much higher environmental standards is a good idea because we are going to need those minerals. We're going to use them. So where we get them from matters tremendously. Well, uh, storing energy is one of the big tough pieces when you're talking about especially solar and wind or any kind of renewables in the wintertime in the Arctic. Uh, that's a tough prospect. What's on the horizon in that respect? Givy, do you have, do you want to start us off there? So I think in a real basic sense, uh, we've got uh, storage competitions ongoing at DOE for uh, industry and the private sector to try to find ways to enhance storage capabilities of batteries and related systems. We have 17 national labs in our department with each with slightly different focus areas, but many of the labs are also in the storage world trying to uh, assist uh, with microgrids and necessary storage to make them uh, operate in the optimal setting. You may have seen recently in the news uh, from last week from the Arctic X event that the Sandia National Labs in our port of Alaska here inked an MOU looking at developing a microgrid and uh, piece and parcel to that will be good storage capabilities for what they're trying to do. So right here in town, we'll be able to see examples of this. Hmm. Garrett? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think that's a tremendous challenge. Um, you know, the unfortunate truth might be for a long time, diesel's the part of the solution here in rural Alaska because the wind doesn't always blow, sun doesn't always shine, and shipping out giant battery packs to these villages that won't actually get you through the winter anyway is just not economically feasible. So I think other solutions might come to come into play here. If you're talking hydrogen or maybe even micronuclears, you know, a decade from now, we'll see where it goes. But storage is a, a challenge for us. When, when you're both working in the public sphere and talking to people, especially folks who are, are really concerned 
about fossil fuel and the changing climate, and especially in Alaska where it's happening so much faster than other places on the globe. How do you work on that energy literacy piece uh, to help people understand that that weaning off a of fossil fuel is a very complicated process, and it can't happen immediately as people would like to see. The amount of energy produced by you know a gallon of gasoline or diesel fuel or oil compared to solar panels or wind generation, it's a steep hill to climb. How do you talk about that in the public? And Bill, do you want to start us off in that respect? Yeah, I guess it, I think it's important to look at diesel fuel um, from a perspective of energy only. It is just a tremendous uh, resource. It has high energy density. It's storable. Um, it remains liquid down to low temperatures. Um, you can transport it from place to place. Uh, you have it when you need it kind of thing. Um, so there is no wonder why we rely so heavily on diesel fuel. Obviously, it comes with environmental risks. Um, the whole energy storage conundrum has been helped quite a bit through the development of electric vehicles. We've been waiting since 2005. Oh, it, it's going to get to a point, you know, there's a big push. Uh, Elon Musk and others are, are driving the, the railroad trying to get battery technology down to a point where it's affordable and you can use it. But we're still talking uh, using those technologies of minutes and hours and not days and weeks of energy storage in order to do uh, very longer, long-term energy storage, we're either going to have to do some sort of uh, pumped hydro, which obviously would have difficulty at 40 below, um, or looking at some sort of uh, non-carbon energy generation. Folks are looking at hydrogen, looking at ammonia, those sorts of things. Um, but it takes a lot of energy to create those uh, fuel systems and or those fuels and it's uh, we don't have the systems in place to store and maintain uh, those items yet. So there is going to be a, a transition if we are talking about going to uh, very high penetration renewables. Uh, it's it's going to require quite a bit of development on the renewable side and quite a bit of development in energy creation and storage. Givy or Garrett, do you, when you're talking to folks about energy literacy and, and helping them understand what it takes to transition, are there any kind of visuals that you can use to sort of make that comparison between here's a gallon of diesel fuel, here's how many, you know, panels it takes or how many, how much sun power it would take to replace that? Are there things to help people understand the magnitude of what we're talking about? I think you hit on a good point, Lori, that this really is a people business much more than a technology business, that if you can help people understand the situation, they're better informed to make stronger decisions. And uh, personally, I find it fascinating since we work around the state in both our agencies where projects take root and where they don't. And a lot of that comes down to the, the capability and the literacy of folks on these issues. Uh, there's some real leaders around the state that we're going to be talking about today, but there's other places that are kind of left behind. And as we look to energy justice and some of the administration priorities right now, we need to make sure that everybody's coming along. And specifically to that, uh, 
not all utilities are cooperatives in the state of Alaska. There's a lot of independent utilities. And there's an initiative that we started together between Denali Commission and the Department of Energy looking at supporting rural standalone utilities, the ones that, you know, you read about in the paper that run out of fuel or that are going bankrupt or having other challenges. And our hope here is that if we can get them to a baseline, we can get them to the point where everybody hopefully will be competitive for some of this infrastructure money that's coming from Congress so that they can afford to upgrade their systems to these new uh, technologies that do work that you know you can point we started talking about northwest alaska and the kotzebue wind farm i mean that's been around for 25 years there's solar that's been deployed for you know 10 plus years in rural alaska and doing really well and you know obviously you're always gonna have naysayers that say it won't work up here it can't work but you know i've seen it garrett's seen it i mean it doesn't really work in alaska and it's a it's the way that we go forward i'd say there's there's two different audiences for this kind of thing um here in alaska if you've been here long enough, you're fairly pragmatic and you understand how things operate. And those folks are pretty easy to reach. And the, the broader national audience that you deal with sometimes and that I've dealt with uh, in prior roles perhaps, when you're talking about people who are you know, from a big city on the East Coast and they've never left that environment, explaining to them what an islanded microgrid is and that you can't just truck in you know, tons of batteries and tons of PV panels or a wind turbine, that's hard to explain. So there's a lot of education that needs to happen. So that's how I approach solving the problem, just talking to folks about what, what the re real life is on the ground here in rural Alaska. All right. Well, thanks for that. Let's go to the phones quickly before we have to take a break. Craig is in Utkjagvik. Hello. How's it going? Can you guys hear me? Yes. Hey, my name is Craig, and I run a business called Doxy Services LLC in Barrow, and about a week, I got a guy coming up from California to teach me how to install solar panels on my house. And I, I already installed satellite dish for Dish Network, but uh, <clears throat> that's what Doxy Services LLC is. But I just had uh, a few questions maybe to see if a couple of you guys want to maybe come up to a Cagbook and... Uh, put your insight maybe we can educate the community on what because the sun doesn't come down up here it's up 24 hours right now and i feel that if we can use my house as a you know a teaching tool i feel we could you know word of mouth is so powerful up here and uh we, you know i just want to thank you guys for getting me on there i'm going to be installing solar panels up here in Barrow, but I'm really from Buckland, Alaska. So in Buckland, we got these windmills, we got solar panels that all run, they, they all run to the same battery storage center in, in the middle, in the, in, in the midtown Buckland. So anyways, I just wanted to thank you guys for talking about this. This is a very important, <clears throat> very important topic. And I feel like uh, everybody needs to get educated. Everybody's kind of still in the COVID pandemic, you know, and they, people people are not aware of what's going on in the in, in the in the world. And I feel like it's important to educate everybody that, you know, there are tax breaks for getting solar panels installed, and there are, you know, incentives uh, with the federal government and state government. And I feel like if we can educate the state on, you know, reducing the cost of living, I feel like we can we can move mountains. 
So here at Doxy Services LLC in Recavic, I want to thank you guys for uh, bringing up this topic, and uh, I hope you guys enjoy your day. Thank you, Craig, so much for the call. And uh, we do have your contact information, so I'll make that available to our guests, and maybe they'll be in touch about uh, trying to help you out with your project up there. It sounds like it's it's um, a worthwhile endeavor, and it's great that you're already engaged in learning how to install solar panels yourself. So thanks a lot. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be joined by... Um, Edwin Byfelt, who is the founder and CEO of the Alaska Native Renewables Industry that uh, originally got started in Huslia. And our guests, again, I should have reminded folks that the guests that we have on uh, with us today are also Givi Kohanovsky, the senior advisor for the U.S. Department of Ener- Ar- Arctic Energy in Anchorage. That office is in Anchorage. Garrett Boyle is the federal co-chair of the Denali Commission. And on the line with us is Bill Stamp, president and CEO of AVAC, Alaska Village Electric Cooperative. We'll be back in just a minute. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. The special primary election for U.S. Representative is June 11th by mail, and an application is not needed. Ballots will start to be sent April 27th. Voters receive the same ballot regardless of political affiliation and all candidates are on the ballot. The top four vote-getters move on to the special general election. Ballots must be mailed, signed, and postmarked by June 11th. More at elections.alaska.gov. This message sponsored by the Division of Elections. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. We have not been able to reach Edwin Byfelt, but Edwin, if you're listening, we're trying to reach you. <laughs> so hopefully he will join us. But we have wonderful, astute guests with us, and we'd love to hear from you as well. If you'd like to join our conversation, 1-800-478-8255 is the number statewide. That's 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550 550-8422. You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. So I, uh, <clears throat> we've been reporting uh, our newsroom on fuel prices around the state. But uh, Garrett, what do you see in that regard when you're talking to some of the rural communities that you work with? What, what are they facing right now? Well, you know, I might defer to Bill on this one since he's a first-hand user, but what I'm hearing is it's skyrocketing tremendously, yeah. and this is going to make it harder for them to actually make the transition away from diesel because now that's going to eat into your savings. Mm. So it's it's a compounding problem. Bill, what are you hearing from communities about um, expense? I know that we've heard prices as high as $14, $15 a gallon. Yeah, a lot of it depends on uh, the transport mechanism. We have... Uh, communities that no longer can receive barge service. No attack is one of them. Shungnak, where we um, partnered for that solar battery array, gets intermittent barge service. Uh, so you have to fly in all the fuel, and that is much more expensive. Um, 
typically, I would say our average cost of fuel was in the three to three and a half dollars a gallon uh, delivered last year. And this year we're looking at four and a half, five dollars a gallon um, delivered to most communities. However, up in Shungnak and no attack where we have to fly it in, not only is the initial cost of fuel more expensive, but obviously all the transport costs go up because they all rely on fuel. Um, over the winter, we had uh, difficulty getting our typical supplier into no attack. So we had to charter a special flight to get fuel into no attack. And we had deliveries that were as high as $17 a gallon. So over the year, that's going to average out to probably uh, $14 or $15 a gallon for that community. That's just stunning to imagine how folks are able to, even just with gas prices the way they are right now, I, I, I'm not sure how folks are managing that have to commute great distances. It's really definitely a, a big big hardship and um, kind of you're at the mercy of whatever the market is, which is another reason why renewables are increasingly um, positive and have the, the ability to hopefully stabilize prices in the future, correct? Is that kind of what you're looking at? You're both nodding. So, uh, Gibby, talk a little about that. You you said DOE's Arctic Energy Office is a full-spectrum energy support office. What does that mean, and how does that relate to people trying to think about the future and get to that stabilized pricing place? So we're a resource uh, research and development agency, like I mentioned, the labs. So we have a lot of good technical capability through the labs and our program offices to bring this education and this capacity to Alaska. During the Arctic X event last Monday, we had uh, 12 of the 17 national labs here in state meeting with Alaskans, over 300 participants in the event. And it was a great way to network and learn about what's happening in the R&D world that can directly apply to the Arctic in Alaska. Uh, we were very pleased with the turnout and also just the nature of conversations. I got to listen in on quite a few of them where people would just sidebar and start meeting each other, lab people and Alaskans talking about these challenges like Bill has raised. Uh, you know, there's no easy solution. I mean, this is certainly a big challenge that we're facing in rural Alaska with the energy crisis. But in some cases, technology is the right solution. And in those cases, we definitely want to bring the best that we have to the state because this is a great proving ground. Alaska has 10% of the world's microgrids. In many cases, people argue that the microgrid started in Alaska. So we really are a place to learn and develop technologies and then also share it with the world from here. I mean, we've got great examples of innovation in the state of Alaska out of necessity and out of uh, hard work by many people. And I think long-term, we can be an export of technologies that are proven, already proven in Alaska for the rest of the country and the rest of the world. And when you say that people argue that the microgrid started here, it's because of our great distances mm -hmm. between communities and uh, a lack of transmission lines. It just isn't viable to go hundreds of miles with transmission lines from one village that has a, a local plant and a local grid to another. So there were a lot of microgrids here before people had even term that phrase, correct? Right. Garrett, talk a little bit about um, your thoughts along these lines. I was looking at the 2022 work plan for um, the Denali Commission, and there's about $5 million that are geared toward energy reliability and security. Do you have projects now that 
are going to be started or have started in this short construction season? Or are you still looking at, you'd mentioned that you were scoring applications and things. Is it still in that process? Most of that money we execute in partnership with AEA and AVEC. So they'll work from their priority lists and say, okay, if we're getting this much money from Denali Commission, we'll match it with an equal amount of money. And then they go out and do the work. So yeah, there will be... Well, for the FY22 work plan, depending on how long it takes commerce to approve it, maybe, maybe not, uh, but the FY21 work plan is is out there and being executed on right now. Okay. All right. Well, we have Edwin on the phone with us now, and uh, we want to bring him in here and, and um, hear from him. Hi, Edwin. Hey, good morning. Thanks so much for being available. And again... Edwin is uh, with, he is the founder and CEO of Alaska Native Renewables Industries. And that's, that uh, organization got started in Huslia. So you, it's my understanding that you started with wiring, retrofit projects, moved into solar. Talk about how you got started and, and did you start, were you starting with DOE right from the start? Department of Energy. Um. Yeah, yeah. So we, um, like you said, we started with these uh, community-wide LED lighting retrofits. Uh, the first project was in Huslia in um, 2017. So that was a DOE start grant, I believe. Um, <clears throat> in 2018, we had a few more projects. We had a project in Ruby and two in Holy Cross, um, and then in. 2018 again, we had a project in Hughes, Alaska, which was a um, 120 kW solar project. Um, I believe that might have been DOE funding also. Um, and so, yeah, that's how we got our start. So you mentioned four communities. In those communities, how much uh, power are they generating now from solar? And do they have the ability in a power outage situation to switch from diesel to solar or back and forth um, easily? Uh, yes. So Hughes um, has been going diesels off um, these past few weeks or this past month. Um, essentially, yes. So um on the, the newer projects that we have done, so um, Shumnak, uh, we we actually had, um, so we had 223 kW in Shumnak, and then we had 384 kilowatt hours of battery storage. Um, that includes a uh, microgrid controller system that integrates the solar, the uh, battery storage, and then the, the diesel generators. So, um, yeah, it's able to, to monitor and, um, you know, integrate those those different uh, resources, um, you know, into the grid. So, Shungnex can go and diesel off uh, um, fairly regularly this past month. Um, and then, you know, that should be continue on this, you know, into this summer so. What do you hear from community members once their projects are up and running and suddenly their energy is very quiet? Uh, are, are, have you talked to people that were maybe skeptical at first and now they're, 
they're really enthusiastic about it, or what's been the reaction from communities as these projects get stood up? Um, so, yeah, it was when we first, uh, you know, commissioned um, Shumnak back in September of last year, um, I was, you know, in the community and you know, it was kind of, um, you know, felt just kind of strange. Like all of a sudden, you know, you didn't hear those those loud diesel generators in the department and Shungnax is right in town. Um, you know, so we, we, right after that, we made a radio announcement, VHF radio announcement, and said, hey, the, the community's diesel's off right now. Um, so... Yeah, I think it's been positive. Um, in Hughes, when they um, had first gone diesels off, also um, the uh, the first chief there, um, I guess uh, he had called uh, um, uh, Dave Messier, who's with uh, Tana Chief, and he's also a project partner on uh, some projects. But so he had called Dave, and he said, "Hey, Dave, what's going on?" Um, you know, the generators aren't, uh, we, we can't hear the generators. Is, is there something, are they testing something? <laughs> and because the lights are flawed. Um, and yeah, they was like, yeah, it's, it's your diesel's off right now. So, um, yeah, I think it's been, you know, kind of probably a mix of surprise. And, um, you know, I believe it's, it's, I believe it's, it's pretty positive. I think people, people enjoy that. Yeah, I'm sure they do, having quiet and not having to hear diesel or smell diesel. That's got to be a, a, a good thing. Let's go to the phones for just a moment. Emma is in Girdwood. Hi, Emma. Hi there. Can you hear me? Yes. Great. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I uh, live off-grid, and unlike uh, many of the other callers, I, I am not in a remote area. However... Uh, we are an island in community. Um, our, our our community is about five miles above Girdwood, and there's uh, 75 different members. Uh, we live in about 30 different cabins, ranging from large to small. Uh, and the reason I was calling is we recently applied for the Department of Energy um, Energy Transitions Initiative Program. So we're awaiting to hear if we are accepted, but it's just a, the point I wanted to bring up is that the benefits of renewable energy are felt so widely. It's not always um, hard to reach communities. It can often be places like ours where we're only five miles from the grocery store, but we live in an avalanche zone and we've been living off grid this way for 20 years. It's actually allowed us to stay in Girdwood um, Girdwood land prices are very expensive, real estate is expensive, and having the ability to live off-grid has uh, been really beneficial for our family. So we're hoping to be a part of this program, and if we are, the exciting part is that it is something that other people can see very close to Anchorage. We have so many tourists. We have members from the university who have come and done studies for the hydro capabilities, so it's just exciting, and I just wanted to put it out there that um, renewable energy benefits so many layers of um, the community. So thanks for having this conversation. 
All right. Well, thanks for the call, Emma, and uh, good luck with your project that you're undertaking there near Girdwood. We're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion on renewable energies in Alaska as Talk of Alaska continues. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. People who smoke or have smoking-related conditions like lung and heart disease are more likely to get seriously ill from COVID-19. Not using any tobacco or e-cigarette products is one of the best ways to keep your immune system strong, ready to fight all kinds of viruses. If you decide to quit, help is available. Call Alaska's Tobacco Quit Line at 1-800-QUIT-NOW or text READY to 200-400 to get the support you need to quit for good. This message sponsored by Alaska's Tobacco Quit Line. On June 11th, Alaska will have the first round of a special election to fill the open seat in Congress. Every Alaskan voter will receive a ballot in the mail. In the June 11th primary, you can only vote for one person. The ranking happens later. Pick your favorite candidate, sign, and get a friend to sign as well. Then mail it back. And remember that June 11th is the Pick One primary. This message sponsored by Alaskans for Better Elections. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. 1-800-478-8255 is the number statewide if you'd like to join our conversation in our final minutes here today about renewable energy in Alaska. 1-800-478-8255. In Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422, 550-8422. You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. Emma's call about applying to the Department of Energy for a, a community project. Givy, what can you tell us about that and what that means? So that's a great program. It's called the Energy Transition Partnership Program. And Alaska did quite well in the first round. Five of, I believe it was a dozen total nationwide were selected here. So Sitka, Dillingham, Wainwright, and Yuzinki all were positive recipients of that grant. And it's a community-led technical assistance initiative to help bring the capabilities of the department to those communities to solve their energy questions and problems they might be facing. And I think that's a really good lead-in to what's happening now with the infrastructure bill and the uh, funding that's coming. My department alone received $65.5 billion. It's coming out over the next five years. And this is a time for Alaskans to make their voices be heard, to make sure that when the factors for grants or programs are being developed and considered and they're happening right now, it's really important to have Alaska-specific detail and information. We've shared this with the Secretary of Energy's office through her senior advisor, and that's part of what the Undersecretary of Energy was doing up here the last week and a half, was learning and listening from Alaskans of the unique nature of our state, because we have models and structures that just don't exist anywhere else, and it'd be a shame for Alaska to miss out on this critical funding simply because somebody in D.C. doesn't understand what the unorganized borough is or what an ardor is or some of these other things that are uniquely Alaskan. Mm -hmm. Garrett, how much of your job is uh, that sort of work, helping federal officials understand the unique characteristics of Alaska um, and, and also helping communities with uh, what can be a lot of bureaucratic red tape when it comes to applying to some of these programs. And if you're a small, small community, you don't have uh, a big infrastructure when it comes to either a, a community council or a tribal council, who does that application work? I guess maybe 35, 40% of my job is kind of interagency stuff where you're on various committees and trying to educate folks, again, who are based in D.C., who may not understand the complexities of Alaska. Uh, 
excluding the Department of the Interior, a lot of folks just don't understand the tribal organization system here. Right? They don't get that we do not have reservations. They don't understand the important role of Alaska Native corporations. So that's especially a place I try to focus. When it comes to helping smaller communities, that's a huge problem we need to solve, especially with the infrastructure bill coming out. I mean, there's a lot of discretionary grants. And so if you're a smaller community who doesn't have a professional grant writer on staff, there's maybe one person, you know, your borough manager or city manager who's doing all of the things for the city. It's incredibly hard to dedicate time to filling out, you know, a 40-page long application. So we have, we're talking with AML about how to partner with them. The Alaska Municipal League has a grant writer's hotline that we're exploring, perhaps funding a little bit. And so they can increase that capacity for, you know, rural, rural and smaller communities. Oh, that sounds like uh, that could result in a lot of positive developments for small communities that want these projects but just simply don't have the capacity no. to, to do the application work. Bill, I want to get back to you for a minute here about uh, existing power plants and, and this transition to renewables or the, the combination of them. You noted in an earlier interview that existing power plants may not be working, that may be working fine, but they may be old enough that you can't integrate new web-based technology uh, into them. How much of AVEX system fits into this category, and how are you addressing that? Um, I, I guess I'd say we're about halfway converted to automated control gear, which is really a necessity for integrating renewables. It's kind of like hopping into a, a 1975 station wagon with your iPhone and expecting it to connect up to Bluetooth. If the equipment's not there, you're not going to be able to make that work. So we have um, controls that operate our diesel systems that can be almost entirely manual. A plant operator has to go in, look at what the load is, and select the proper engine to meet that load. And then that engine will run until... Um, Possibly the school comes online and he's going to anticipate a higher load, so he has to go start another engine, parallel it, and bring that one online. Um, we put in new gear uh, over the last 15 or 20 years. We've been putting in automated switch gear that controls the diesel engines, uh, has communication ports so that it can communicate with other generators outside of our power plant. And that's a big push for us now is uh, upgrading all of our control systems so that uh, as funding becomes available and the resources become available to put in more renewable systems, we'll be able to integrate those with our diesel systems. Uh, we, we've done a lot of wind systems, wind diesel, um, and made great strides in providing energy without any energy storage, uh, but we need to continue the effort of, of upgrading all of our systems. And I think, uh, you know, even wind is not available everywhere. Solar, I think, is going to be the great equalizer just about anywhere. I think uh, we can get some benefit from solar throughout Alaska. All right. Thanks. I want to give... That's kind of what we're yeah, that sounds great uh, that you're about halfway there and, and moving forward. So I want to give Edwin Byfeld the last word here in our final minute. Edwin, the Shungnak Solar Project is operational. Where are you working now? What's next? Is no attack next on the list, or, or where are you, and, and what are you doing over the summer? Yeah, so we have a, um, a project coming up in no attack. We've been, we've been working with the Northwest Arctic Borough on again. Um, it's a 
6KW uh, project with 460 kilowatt hours of battery storage. Um, so that's been our been our main priority this this past few months is just um, you know getting that going. Um, yeah, I just want to give a you know give um, you know a shout out to the Northwest Arctic Bureau. They've um, you know been um, very forward thinking in how they've 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 um, approached renewable energy, um, and it's it's been great to work with them. Um, but yeah, we're excited for you know what's to come. Um, you know, I guess um, I guess one thing I want to touch on is just you know we enjoy doing these projects. We enjoy um, what we've been able to do so far. Um, but I guess um, you know for for it for us to really see the impacts of renewable energy, you know, it has to be scaled. You know, we have to have, you know, we can't just have one project a year. We have to have five or ten, um, you know, the capital investment into it, you know, probably needs to be on the scale of, you know, 150 to 200 million. Um, that's really what's, what it's going to take to um, Significantly transition renewable energy uh, or rural Alaska into you know um, renewable energy. So hopefully that's what we're able to see going forward. Um, you know, there's a lot of potential ideas, potential avenues that we can get to that. Um, but yeah, you know, hopefully that's what we can see is just just a rapid scale over this next decade into into solar. All right. Well, thank you, Edwin and um, Gibby and Garrett. Does that sound? Does that track with what you're looking at too? What he's talking about for this next decade? Absolutely, it's right on target. All right, <laughs> Garrett. Yeah, I, I mean, there's obviously going to need to be a huge amount of capital investment over the next decade to do this well. Absolutely. Thank you, and Bill Stam. So good to have you with us as well. We had Gibby Kolanowski, the senior advisor for the U.S. Department of Energy. Uh, the U.S. Department of Energy's Arctic Energy Office in Anchorage. Garrett Boyle was with us, and he is the federal co-chair of the Denali Commission. And Bill Stamm was on the line. He is the president and CEO of the Alaska Village Electric Cooperative, or AVAC. And we also heard from Edwin Byfelt, the founder and CEO of Alaska Re Native Renewables Industries. Thanks for joining us today. Tobin Shelby is our engineer on uh, the phones and social media. Kavitha George, our producer is Adeline Baxter. And we had help today from our summer intern, Laura Fillion. She also helped out with today's program. I'm Lori Townsend. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Talk of Alaska is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Today's program is available online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media. Alaska Public Media.